So we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 today, verses 18 through 30, uh, in light of the fact that we live with uh, the Spirit dwelling in us, the that Christ has come and died on our behalf, we are now uh, that we are now part of His kingdom, and that's really going to be the study of Luke's gospel, or the the focus of Luke's uh, teaching today, or Jesus is teaching through Luke. Um, and so, if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Now, this isn't going to be the first time that we have heard of the kingdom of God. It's not going to be the first time that Jesus has mentioned it. We're not going to. This isn't a new thing that he's instituting uh, late in his ministry. Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom that he'd come to establish, the kingdom that he's made us a part of. He's been speaking about that since he really began his ministry. But today, rather than just hearing it mentioned, today rather than just having it kind of spoken about, we're actually going to get a perspective of some of its characteristics. We're going to seek to define it. And then he's going to teach us, Jesus is going to show us how we actually get to enter in into his kingdom. And all the while, he's going to show us just how important, how imperative it is, how vital it is that we be seen as part of his kingdom and not those left on the outside looking in. And we're going to do that by highlighting four adjectives and one verb. I'm going to go ahead and just give them to you real quick. The kingdom Jesus rules is both impressive and extensive. Now, I'm just, I'll say this up front because I don't want to have to do it later in the sermon. Impressive is not my favorite word, but I wanted to stay with this IE thing, and you'll see it in just a second. Both impressive and extensive, but it is also both inclusive and exclusive. So just for your memory's sake, I tried to choose words that would kind of strike a chord. So impressive and extensive, exclusive and inclusive. Therefore, you must strive with all you are and all you have, strive to enter in. So four adjectives, exclusive, inclusive, impressive, expansive, or extensive. There's lots of E's and I words out there. We'll see if I don't screw it up before it's all finished. And then strive to enter in. So... Have those words in mind. We're going to read the passage and then see how this works out. Beginning in verse 18 of Luke 13, it says, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know you, or I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. 
God's kingdom is a central theme of Jesus' message and mission. It had been since he began his work. Now, often when we speak of his work, we talk about Jesus coming and dying and saving sinners, right? That's the way we define it. That's the terms we use. But that's kind of just one perspective or one way to describe it. Jesus' work is defined by more than just simply coming to save sinners, in fact, it could be said that he came to establish God's kingdom. And this is, this is evident in every aspect of his words and his work. Now, I'm not going to show you everyone uh, but because we just don't have time for that. But there are, there, there are passage after passage after passage of Jesus' teaching that show us how he emphasized the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes we read past them. Not even thinking of it, not even hearing it, because it's just we're so focused on the salvation work. Not thinking of the broader, broader aspect of how he's saving us to be part of his kingdom. For example, Luke 4.43 says, Jesus says to the, to the masses, he says, I must, or to the people in this village, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He was leaving this village so that he could preach the good news of the kingdom of God all over the area. He's connecting the gospel proclamation, the good news of the gospel, to the establishment of God's kingdom. Luke 8.10, speaking to his apostles about the parables that he taught. Like they come to him and they're like, why are you speaking parables? People aren't understanding. And he says to them that they had been given secrets to, of, of the kingdom of God. They'd been given as, as a blessing, as a benefit to them, some insight into the secrets of God's kingdom. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sends out the twelve. He sends him out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Again, in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 9, when he sends out the 72, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Luke eleven two, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, you remember how that prayer goes? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, hey, God, will you save me? He says, will your kingdom come? And we're to request it. We're to plead for it. In Luke 12, 31, Jesus says, instead of worrying and being anxious over the things of this life, like where you're sleeping, where you're eat, what you're eating and what you're wearing, these basic necessities, rather than worrying and being anxious over the accumulation of this stuff, he says, seek first the kingdom. And I really appreciate the promises attached to that. If you, if you read on in verse 32, he doesn't just say seek the kingdom. He says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He didn't just give you uh, this, this, this salvation. Yes, he did, but he gave you so much more. He gave you his kingdom, his authority, his rule. And the kingdom isn't just woven into the words that Jesus has spoken. It wasn't just part of his message. It was clearly demonstrated in his mission, in the works that he performed. When he healed the sick, made the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He was acting with sovereign power in the brokenness of humanity and in, in his kingdom restoring things to the way they were intended to be. It's the same thing when he sent out the apostles and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. 
This is his sovereignty on display. This is his rule, his authority on display, his power on display. When he spoke to the wind and the waves and creation submitted to him. When the wind quit blowing and the, wave quit, the waves quit, quit uh, uh, coming. When the water went still and the storm quit raging. It's his authority over his creation, his sovereign rule to command his creation to obey. When he sovereignly breaks five loaves and two fish so that a multitude eats. He demonstrates himself to be the ruler and the source of all good things. Maybe, and most evident, is in the casting out of demons. Maybe you'll remember from Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The casting out, the, the oppression, the removal, the sending away of one kingdom, of one power, of one authority, the, 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 the removal of it so that his would be victorious, so that his would be on display. Him establishing his kingdom. One final view, we haven't gotten there yet, one final perspective that, that I think that you can go read about today. It's there for you to read. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. Jesus is hanging on the cross among thieves. You remember what the thief says to him? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. This thief, this, this, this sinful man who, who, so far as we know, this is the first experience or the first uh, intimate moment he'd had with the Savior, the first time that they'd been this close, this, this thief who, we would have, who even by his own admission didn't deserve anything but the crucifixion he was receiving. This thief got it. Jesus didn't just come to simply save a people but to establish a kingdom. By his word and work, Jesus establishes God's kingdom that his people could enter in and commune with him. By his word and work, Jesus established God's kingdom that his people could enter in and commune with him. Now, I'm just going to be totally transparent here, totally upfront with you. By this very statement, I am taking a narrow view of God's kingdom. I'm doing that because I think that's what's most clearly on display. That perspective is most clearly on display in this passage, uh, speaking about the mustard seed that becomes a tree and the, and the leaven that, that works in the whole loaf and the narrow door. See, in one sense, God's kingdom is his sovereign reign. Depending on which passage you look at, depending on what parables you read, you can see God's sovereign rule, his kingdom is over all the earth, that, that everyone is under his rule, that everything is under his reign. Everyone is in that kingdom. Everyone is subject to God's authority. No one is outside of it. But, for example, in the, in the prayer uh, that, that, that he taught us in Luke chapter 11, He's teaching about, us, uh, teaching about a kingdom that comes, a kingdom that, that, that is being established. 
Much of Jesus' teaching promotes this narrow perspective, this narrow view, even now in today's passage. The, the mustard seed must be put in the ground. The leaven must be put in the flour, implying a starting point, a place at which it begins. I think D.A. Carson is helpful in kind of depicting these different perspectives. I think it's a good way for us to look at it. The kingdom of God, he says, the kingdom of God in the sovereignty sense doesn't come. It is here. It is unavoidable. It is eternal. It is primordial. It has come from forever and will go to forever. You can't escape it. You never outside of it. But if kingdom refers to the subset under which there is salvation and reconciliation and forgiveness and eternal life and so forth and so forth, then that opens up the possibility to speak of the kingdom coming. And so as we look at today's passage, this is the perspective we're looking at it from. Because I think it's clear that these, reverses, these verses refer to the subset of God's sovereign rule over all things. They refer specifically to the subset of, of God's kingdom in which the people are being saved. People are being given eternal life. People are being forgiven. People are being reconciled to God and to each other. I think that you can see this most clearly in the teaching on the narrow door when there are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Those who are reclining at God's table in a picture of communing with him, in a picture of relating to him, in a picture of intimate uh, 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 relationship with him. And then those are there, there are those who are workers of evil, and rather than enjoying God's table, they endure weeping and gnashing of teeth. Misery because they long to be inside and can't be, and, and, and anger because they can't believe that there's people in there that that aren't them. And so for today, we're taking a look at God's kingdom from this narrow perspective, this reign and realm that Jesus has come to establish and will one day be consummated. So let's just define it so we have it all kind of in our head uh, about this view. The, the sovereign rule of God, this is how I would define God's kingdom in this perspective. The sovereign rule of God initiated by Earth's, by Christ's earthly ministry. Now, we'll stop there and just take a, take a second and just think about that. God was always sovereign. But in, this, in, in, in Christ coming in, he establishes a sovereign rule in his earthly ministry that's to be consummated when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So there will be a time there will be a time, and it's the time that I think we're all to be looking forward to. In fact, we should be hungering for that day in which the kingdom of God, his sovereign rule, is over all the earth, and it is not contested or rejected in any way. But his people reside in the earth, and he resides here with us. Where the fullness of his kingdom, the realm that it exists in, is his earth, and not just the hearts of his people. But for today, it has been established in the world by the word and work of Christ in the hearts of his people. See, Jesus didn't just teach these parables to help us gain a definition, did he? In fact, he doesn't even really define it. That's really being built out of the word that's from the Greek that speaks of authority and speaks of dominion. 
that can also be used to speak of a realm of people. Jesus taught on the kingdom here so that we could see what it's like. So we could gain a picture of what's to come and the work that he's doing. He gives us this portrayal of, the God's, of, of God's kingdom through the teaching of these parables. And this is really where we're going to get into the adjectives that I uh, mentioned before. By his word and work, Jesus established God's impressive kingdom. His impressive kingdom. In verse 19, he starts with this, this picture, this, this word picture of, of a mustard seed that's tiny that grows into a tree. And it grows into this tree, and, and in its branches, the, the, what came from the seed is, is impressive. The contrast of the growth is impressive. It's, it's shocking. It's, it's awe-inspiring. And just as a side note, let me just go ahead and say this so that if you go out looking for it, then you'll, or you get challenged by someone with it, probably the mustard seed, the, the, the mustard seed was, was, was as, according to Matthew, the smallest of seeds. And so it may not be the smallest of seeds in the world. But it's likely the smallest of seeds that they would have known at that time. Like, for example, I know uh, I found this out during my research. The tobacco seed is smaller than the mustard seed, this particular type of mustard seed. And so everybody's like, oh, well, they're wrong. Well, no, they didn't, they didn't plant tobacco. Tobacco is an American thing, right? So they, they weren't growing a bunch of tobacco over there. They wouldn't have known about that seed. But, but for their gardens, for their planting, the mustard seed would have been the smallest seed they knew. And it likely, it, it, it likely wasn't a tree like we think of tree. Like we speak with very specific language today. They're speaking of a, a, a tree. Matthew says it becomes the largest of the garden plants that grows into a tree. Luke just says it, it grows into a tree. You go out looking on the internet, you're not going to find a tree that's a mustard tree, not in the woody, barky sense with a big fat trunk and big fat branches like an oak tree that grows up in your front yard and drops leaves on your yard every winter. That's not that kind of tree. But it does grow big enough and strong enough from its tiny little beginning. It grows big enough and strong enough that it supports the nesting of birds among its branches. And that's, I think, Jesus' point. That there's this impressive growth from something that seems insignificant at its beginning. And put yourselves in the shoes of these disciples for just a second. I mean, just for just a moment. They're listening to a carpenter. And they're a a bunch of ragtag nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, and who knows who else. Of all people, of everybody that should be there, Jesus probably should be there. I mean, he had just healed a woman who had been bent over and told her to stand up straight. They had seen him do miraculous things. He probably belonged there, speaking of this mustard seed in this kingdom more than they did. But who were they? And his kingdom, I mean, he's talking about this kingdom that's growing to this massive thing. Into this, into this massive, ma massive growth. And, and, and here they're looking around. And, and, and by all accounts at that point, his ministry is actually shrinking. The leaders of, of Israel, the, the religious leaders of the day had rejected him. And the people are no longer coming and, and listening and following. They're coming selfishly to get healed of some sickness or to, 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 to have some story to tell. But when he teaches something that's hard... 
They reject him and walk away. There's a story, a, a telling in John, where he's gathered, thousands have come to see him, and, and by the end of his teaching, it's just as 12. And just imagine, on the day of his crucifixion, how they felt. Now, I don't think they were thinking about a mustard seed being put in the ground. You've given up three years of their life to follow this guy all over Israel. And yeah, they had some great stories to tell. But man, all of a sudden, it seems like it is over. But I think it's no surprise that after having met the resurrected Lord and being called to the mountain from which he is going to ascend into heaven, when they get there, their first question to him is, are you now going to establish your kingdom. They had seen him put in the ground and what stood before them was impressive. This dead man standing before them in the flesh. And I get a little bit of a rebuke there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1. It's not for you to know the times and dates. What they didn't understand was that now Jesus had a purpose that they too would join him in the growth and the impressive expansion of his kingdom. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. You see, now the kingdom was going to begin to spread. Now the kingdom was going to do just exactly what Jesus said it would do. From humble beginnings, from seemingly insignificant starting place, it spread all over. I appreciate J.C. Ryle as he commented on this passage. He says this, in spite of persecution, opposition, and violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased year after year. Its adherents became more numerous. Year after year, idolatry withered away before it. City after city, country after country received the new faith. Church after church was formed in almost every quarter of the earth then known. Preacher after preacher rose up. Missionary after missionary came forward to fill the place of those who died. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, you know, the one they thought they'd deal with by crucifying him. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, the religion which began in the upper chamber at Jerusalem, had overrun the civilized world. Oh man, God's kingdom grows is growing to something that is impressive. It's awe-inspiring. The gates of hell will not stand against it. There's no way it can be stopped. They will fall down before this kingdom as it grows and benefits anyone who makes their home within its branches. By his word and work, Jesus established God's impressive kingdom. By his word and work, Jesus established God's extensive kingdom. See, the next portrayal is that of the, leaven, the woman leavening bread. I, I think this picture shows us the extensive reach of the kingdom. The mustard seed kind of shows us impressive outward growth. Well, I think the leaven shows us the extensive inward growth. Now, I'm not a baker. We have a baker in the church, and she's here. You can ask her later, or she could tell me I'm wrong right now. I'd be all right. Well, I don't. Tell me later if I'm wrong. My ego is too fragile for that. 
But the way I understand it is if you put a little, little leaven in, it's going to spread through the whole batch. If you leave it long enough, it will spread all the way until the whole thing is leavened. It will not stop until all the dough is leavened. And that's what Jesus is kind of showing us here. So even though it's invisible, not focusing on outward growth, there's still this internal growth that is extensive, that will not stop until it has been completed. I love the passage that says uh, that he who began a good work in us will not stop until it's been completed, right? There's this idea that he is going to extensively grow within us. Now, I don't think we want to start at the personal level. I think we should apply this at a couple of different levels. You can apply it to his people at large, referring to the big C church or the people of God from those before Christ extending to those who will come after us. There's this referring, this idea that the church just doesn't grow outward. It doesn't just grow in breadth, but also in depth. That we grow in Christ together in faith, unity, knowledge, and obedience. We become more mature. We become more like Christ. This corporate sanctification and purification can be pressed in then at, at, the, at the individual level. The grace of God does not stand still in the life of a person. In the same way that it advances around us, it advances within us. It grows in its influence. It reshapes us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So the church, as it matures in its individual components and in its individual peoples, matures as a whole. So maybe you see the life of a new believer on display next to one who is not yet a believer or never will come to faith. And there may be very indistinguishable difference, very difficult to tell the difference, but like a lump of loaf that rises, eventually there's going to be evidence be seen. You put that same new believer who's almost indistinguishable from those still in the world and put them next to the mature believer, one who has been believing in Christ and being sanctified by Christ forever grow, or, or regularly growing in Christ. You're going to see differences. In fact, you should be able to see it in your own life. You should not be the same person you were the day that you came to faith. You should see the extensive reach of God's gracious kingdom ruling over your life more and more and more. So the great kingdom grows impressively outward and extensively inward. But Jesus shows us that there's more to consider. At another point, at, a, at another time, and he's, he's being confronted, he's being asked a question really, how many people are going to be in the kingdom? Is it just going to be a few people who are saved? He doesn't even really answer that question. That's, Jesus is good for that. Like you ask a question thinking you want a certain answer, and he tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. He does that regularly. This question, are just a few people going to be saved? Like how many people are going to be there in, in the end? And he says, instead, strive to enter the narrow door. Almost, in fact, hey, quit worrying about how many people are be there. You, you need to do this. Strive to enter through the narrow door. 
And he goes on and shows that many will seek to enter. They won't be able. And once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door. Lord, open to us. He will say, I do not know where you come from. Listen, do his word and work. And this is not a popular perspective. But by his word and work, Jesus established God's exclusive kingdom. There will be people who do not become a part of this kingdom. The door, I think, it depicts that picture, this narrow door, regardless of popular opinion, all paths do not lead to heaven. Regardless of all popular opinion, love wins, but that doesn't mean all will be saved. Love wins because those who he saved are saved. And those who would not enter in will only be able to stand at the door and knock. Let me point out just how ridiculous it is for us to make claims like this, that, the, that all paths lead to heaven or that, that, that the path is wide, that everybody is headed the same direction, that we're all going towards God. The, the idea of a kingdom demonstrates that there is authority, that there is one who reigns, that there's one who makes laws, that there's one who determines how things will be designed, that there's one who, who determines who will come into the kingdom, who's, who's acceptable in the kingdom and those who are not. If this is God's kingdom, then who gets to make those decisions and who gets to decide those things? But yet we stand in this place where we tell God how his kingdom will be defined, how his kingdom will be entered, how his kingdom will be in in, in all places over all peoples, even those who would reject his authority. And by the very claim, by the very claim that all paths lead to heaven, reject the fact that Jesus just taught us that the door is narrow and some will be left out. Follow the logic. Whose kingdom do we talk about when we talk about all paths leading to heaven? One in which he rules over or one in which we do? I think you get the point. This narrow door is the dividing line between God's impressive and extensive kingdom filled with blessing in which people commune with him. They come in and they recline at his table and they eat his feast. It's the dividing line between this realm and the realm in which his authority has been rejected that is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth, misery, because they long to be in there where the blessing is, and gnashing of teeth because they're angry that someone they thought deserved it less than they is there. See, God's impressive and extensive kingdom is also exclusive. Not everyone will enter in. Because not everyone will be willing to consider the narrow door. Not everyone will strive to walk through that narrow door. But his kingdom is not just exclusive, it is Inclusive by his word and work, Jesus established God's inclusive kingdom. 
Jesus gives us this view of who will be in the kingdom, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets. But also there will be people from every point of the compass that enter into to the narrow door. There will be people from every nation, from every language, from every ethnicity, both rich and poor, educated and uneducated, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor, who's most famous probably for the, the hymn Amazing Grace, is quoted as saying, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. Three wonders there, sorry. First, to meet someone I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. The people in that day, the people in that day would have been overlooked because they reject the narrow door. But those who, I'm sorry I said that wrong, the people in that day that thought they deserved the honor of sitting at the table would reject the narrow door and they would be counted last and least. But those who they would look around at and say, you do not deserve this, you have not earned your place, I am better than you, will enter in. And they will be jealous, and they will be angry, and they will be miserable. While the last are treated with great honor. Who are so invited to sit at the table and feast with their God. It will be shocking to see. I think we'll be surprised. But I'm certain that like John Newton, if we are there We won't be angry and miserable. We won't be sitting around counting heads. We'll be shocked that we're sitting at that table. Because we'll know we don't deserve it. Today, God has made sure that he brought you to this place to ensure that you gain a glimpse of his kingdom. And in so doing, He also gives you the opportunity to hear his kingdom invitation. You see, he doesn't just say this is what the kingdom's like. He actually tells us to do something about it. He actually tells us to respond to the narrow door. By his word and work, Jesus established God's kingdom and says strive to enter in. The word he uses translated as strive is the same word from which we take the word agonize. Like agonize over this. We should feel it. We should feel it mentally. We should feel it physically. We should feel it spiritually. We, we should feel the effort given to entering in the narrow door. So that we can recline at his table. But let me just be a bit more specific. What I think he's getting at is strive in faith and repentance. Don't mistake his words here as a call for us to, by our own works and by our own effort, enter into the door. By, by our own power and by our own might, somehow figure it out on our own. Remember this. The very fact that there's a door that's open to us. The very fact that he spoke the words is a demonstration that he made it available to begin with. 
His grace is on display before His call to enter in. His power, His might, His establishing of the kingdom. It is His grace that we are called to respond to. The availability and the faith, they start not with ourselves, but they are God's gift to us. Now strive more and more to trust in Him, to to enact your faith, to grow in your faith, to sharpen your faith. Where you do not believe, strive to believe. Where you do not trust Him, strive to trust Him. Oh, I trust Him. I bet if we sit down for just a few minutes today, because you're convinced you trust Him fully, I can show you you don't trust Him fully. Strive to grow in your faith in Him. And I'm not saying that to be a jerk because I can tell you that there's areas of my life that I don't trust him fully. In fact, the further I go, the farther I realize my faith has not spread. So I strive to trust him more fully. I am like that dad who says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And whether we want to admit it or not, whether we like to admit it or not, that's every believer's testimony. Strive to believe him more fully. Strive to live more repentantly. To trust more fully in God so that we're running further from the world. To trust more fully in his provision and the satisfaction we have in him so that we are no longer pursuing the things of the world. Remember, he says, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be pursuing the things of the daily needs of life, but seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom. Pursue it. Strive in faith and repentance. Strive in obedience. The very idea of a kingdom denotes, implies, clearly implies authority. God commands and he expects us to obey. In fact, in this verse, in verse 24, he commands, strive to enter through the narrow door. That is a command. He doesn't say, Do it if you feel like it. He doesn't doesn't give us an option. If we're going to enter in, he says we must strive. We must strive in obedience. The more you believe him, the more you trust him, the more you live repentantly, the more natural your life will be lived in obedience to him. So strive to live in repentance and faith that you might strive to live in obedience. I think the perspective of Paul writing to the Philippian church is helpful here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Calling even greater levels of obedience. Much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Might just be another way of saying strive to enter the narrow door. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the source. If you have the opportunity, if you have the inclination, if you have the desire to strive for it, you can thank God for that. But now he says, put it into practice. Work out the salvation that you've been made aware of in fear and trembling. Strive to enter the narrow door by living in obedience to all that he has said. Strive in prioritization. Don't wait. Don't pick other opportunities. 
Because there is a point where the master rises and walks to the door and closes it. And the opportunity is gone. Be lost forever. And you could spend every day from here to eternity knocking. Let me in. Let me in. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth out here. Let me in. Away from me, all you workers of evil. Again, I think Paul's words, an example to the church at Philippi, are helpful here. See, there's no greater priority. Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's just recounted the stature and the prominence that he had in Jewish culture. And he says, I count it as loss. Indeed, I count everything. Everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. As a pile of manure. As rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him. Is that our priority? Is that what we live for every day? Is that the thought that precedes our mind as we step out of bed in the morning? That I may know him. When we step into our places of business, And pursue the things that that are around us. Is that what precedes us? That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was a rising star. He was a rising star in the Jewish world, but he left it all to follow Christ and pursue pursue eternal life, life in God's kingdom. If you need an example, look first to Jesus, the one who left heaven, stepped out of heaven, put on flesh to dwell among us and humbled himself to be a servant. Humbled himself to the point of death, not just any death, but death on a cross sacrificially taking our place for our sins that we may be made alive but in case you need another example look at the life of Paul his own prominence his own position his own well-being it's rubbish nothing and he would leave it all behind so that he could know the resurrection of Christ so that he could enter the narrow door and recline at the table of his father this is God's kingdom it's impressive it's extensive it's exclusive but not so exclusive that you don't have the opportunity to be included. 
What are you striving for? Believers, what are you striving for? What are you striving after? Christian, that sat and listened to sermon after sermon after sermon, who's never seen the evidence of the leaven of God's kingdom rule in your life, Maybe you're not a Christian. Strive to enter the narrow door so that you won't be excluded. Non-Christian. You're here today so that you can hear of the narrow door that there's an opportunity for you to enter into eternal life. Quit pursuing a life under your own authority and step in through the narrow door to live under God's as a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your goodness grateful for the opportunity that you've given us, the, the glimpse that you've shown us that, that is to come, the sitting at your table, the hope that is there, the opportunity to leave weeping and gnashing of teeth behind. We can sit among your people at your table and feast. Father, if there is one here today, any here today, would they not hear a legalistic rant, but a gracious invitation to strive to enter in? Are there any here today that have not trusted you? Open their eyes. Let them see that they might believe and strive to enter into your narrow door. Jesus, thank you for coming and being the, the access. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.